0: You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be starting in verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, says this, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual amongst you is to love his own wife, even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." This is the word of the Lord. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today the classic line that unfortunately is now getting old enough that it feels weird when I do it uh, and young people why in the world from uh, the the movie Princess Bride is comical uh, because you remember that the whole bit or point of that that comedic bit was right? It was that the the priest had the ability to enact marriage on two people by simply looking at them and saying, "Man and wife," and so it was done. Do you imagine how terrifying that would be if, if just you just had rogue preachers walking around in malls and he'd see a man and a woman walking in the hallway and right as they passed each other, he just walked up and said, "Man and wife," and there it is. You got marriage. Right? Be terrifying. <laughs> Uh, And thank God that's not obviously what it is, right? Uh, That uh, marriage is not the declaration of uh, some guy on earth that looks at two individuals and says, there it is, you've got it uh, because I, I said so. Uh, we jokingly were doing that with uh, Luke and Rachel's wedding. That when we were rehearsing and we were doing, you know, practicing the vows and you know, emphasizing like, so tomorrow I will confess that I will, you know, whatever. As we were practicing those things, as it, you know, because we didn't want to accidentally get them married early or anything like that. Um, but this is the concept of, of marriage that I think is one of those challenging points. Um, words, I actually was thinking this last week, it'd be interesting to, to do, a, I don't know if I would do it as a sermon series, but as a, even just as a podcast thing or something like that, um, the uh, differing definitions, uh, when you throw out words, like um, if I throw out the word progressive, what's the first, what's the first thought that comes to mind? Huh? Soup. (laughs) See, I think insurance. That's what I think of. Huh? I was thinking flow. Yeah, flow. Yeah, flow from Progressive, right? Well, depending on what your what your what your you know, political leaning is, progressive is either a positive or a negative term, right? Uh, but it's all about how you define it. And we've got gobs of words like that in our world today that we're losing the ability to actually have clear communication with other people because we're using the same words. We just have a totally different screen and a totally different filter and a totally different definition for the words that we use. And marriage has much become one of those things. We, uh, as Galenian Bible Church, talk about biblical marriage... And even if you throw that term out there, it gets to be a, a contentious thing. You can scroll around on Twitter or Facebook and see somebody makes a comment about biblical marriage and people will say, oh, you mean like Solomon's biblical marriage to 378 women? Is that your, is that your definition of biblical marriage or uh, any of those kind of things? And so marriage becomes a very contentious uh, thing in our present society, which is why we have one Sunday a year that we dedicate to sanctity of marriage and what it means. As we last week, we took a look at sanctity of life uh, and the emphasis of that. And today we want to take a look at uh, marriage as it relates to us as a church, as individuals, um, knowing that we have individuals that aren't married in our church. Uh, And I just want to make something absolutely clear to you. You are not a second-rate Christian if you are single. Uh, That is something that is, uh, I think, uh, cannot be over. Uh, emphasized in our world that somehow we we think that you become more spiritual uh, or more Christian or more what it sanctified or whatever um, if you're married and um, I think Jesus maybe had something to tell us about the the holiness of being single uh, that we need to emphasize but we cannot ignore the fact that Scripture teaches a lot about marriage, and uh, and it says something pretty profound. And this passage in particular. Um, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus makes one statement that I think is important for us as Christians to wrap our minds around as he quotes from Genesis so he's tying the Old Testament into this uh, when God creates marriage makes man and then makes woman and brings them together in marriage Uh, and he says this that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this is that. Uh, Adam and Eve wedding story. But then it's the next statement that he makes, which really is what should cause us some pause as Christians. He says, this mystery, he's talking about marriage, is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Why is it that we make marriage such a big deal in Christianity? Why is it that we emphasize it so emphatically Uh, as we talk about it, we want to teach on it. There's conferences and entire aisles and Christian bookstores dedicated to the subject of marriage and all of these kind of things. And it's because of this point that there is something mysterious about the nature of marriage that points us to the reality of our relationship with Jesus. And so we want to get that right. We want to understand that. We want to grapple with that in such a profound way as to shape the way that we think about marriage and our own lives. The definition of marriage um, as it relates to Scripture is oftentimes just very simply put that it is one man and one woman until Death. That is the uh, the covenant depiction of that. It was interesting a number of years ago, um, about eight years ago. I signed up for a, a mission trip with Samaritan's Purse to go help build the Moravian Seminary down in Bethel, and to volunteer with Samaritan's Purse, you have to sign their doctrinal statement saying yeah, I'm, I'm in alignment with that to uh, be able to serve alongside them and so most doctrinal statements all pretty much read the same and so I was just kind of scanning it but then there was a section on, um, I can't remember if the headline was marriage or something along those lines but the thing that caught my eye was in the definition uh, that it it said, um, I believe that marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman uh, from marriage to death and I was like, that is really specific. And again, it's because we live in a day where you have to be very specific with the words that you're using to be able to define things. And so this becomes one of those points at which uh, there is lots of contention and lots of heartache and lots of frustration and lots of disappointment and people that feel ostracized and those kind of things. But we cannot make Scripture say anything other than what Scripture says. And so the issue is not with Scripture, it ends up being with us. And so as we wrestle with this mystery of what is it about marriage that points us to Jesus, and as we wrestle with this passage, uh, which is a a great passage talking to husbands and wives, uh, that he summarizes the whole beginning of this in verse 33, says, Nevertheless, each individual amongst you is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There's a lot of contention about the before this. It says wives be subjected to, or be subject or submissive to your own husband as to the Lord. And then a little bit later, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The point that I emphasize uh, to couples when we walk through these passages and talking about the difference of submission as it relates to role and responsibility within the marriage relationship, and we don't, can't get bent over that because the Bible talk says that that's the same way that God operates within the Godhead Himself. Jesus Himself says, I can do nothing of My own will, but only of the will of Him who sent Me. And yet He is no less God That the Son is no less God than the Father is God. And so we can get bent out of shape about submission if we want to. And yet, uh, the Bible says that God submits to God Himself. And we can look at these things of saying, well, does this make men superior? Because husbands are uh, to be head of the wife. But then we forget what it says. That husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave Himself up for her. He did not love Himself more than he loved her and so this the conclusion of this is that both of these are actually acts of love for husbands to love his wife as himself is a gift of selfless love and wives respecting their husbands ladies i don't know if you know this that's actually how guys show love to other guys they show respect they respect each other It is an act of love that plays out into those. But this whole section of marriage that's there, we could teach through and walk through all of this, but again, knowing that we have a large portion of our church that is not married. And so as we think of the sacredness of marriage and this depiction of it, we want to ask the question, what kind of Christians ought or what ought Christians look like either inside of marriage or outside of marriage that regardless of where we are in human relationship, point to the greater picture of Jesus, so that when the world looks in, and whether they see us as living as Christian singles, or Christian married couples, they see the gospel of Jesus Christ, and points to this greater mystery, that it resides outside of the institution of marriage. And it begins at the beginning of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now notice this is before the passage that we were just reading, so we we began this at the very end of Ephesians, but oftentimes it's important for us to back up and get the broader scope of a passage rather than just seeing the one thing, and you'll begin to see a thread of commonality. And I don't know if you saw it in there, but when He talked about walking in love, He used the same terminology to describe what Jesus did when He said, just as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering. We see that again when He talks to husbands. But who is this passage directed at in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1? Who's the audience of, of that? What's the scope of that verse? The whole, the whole church. You, all you, be imitators of Christ. Rich, poor, single, married, Divorced, widowed, man, woman, if you're in the church, be imitators of God and walk in love as Jesus modeled it for us. And what was that modeling of that? That He gave Himself up as an offering. Then in verse 3, He gets to the point of it. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper amongst the saints. And there must must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather the giving of thanks. Now notice he begins this passage just, just making this grand statement. Be imitators of God. Love like God does. And if you wonder what that looks like, take a look at Jesus and see how He lived His life and see how He gave Himself up and see how He served and see what. look at Jesus and you'll know what it looks like to be an imitator of God and you can live that kind of way. And then he jumps to action and word. But sexual immorality is the word that is used there. And impurity and greed should not even be named amongst you. Nobody should be able to look at you and say, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, actions that you do are a part of, that, uh, are a part of the behavior. It should not even be named amongst you as is proper of the saints. But not only action, word. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, because these are not fitting for believers. The words that he uses here are—they're very graphic terms. The word that is used there for uh, uh, for sexual immorality—it is the the word that is used there—is Uh It's the word that we get porn from in our modern day. Uh, English, It's the word that encompasses everything sexual that is outside of God's design of one man and one woman in marriage relationship. It encompasses everything else outside of that. It encompasses premarital sex or fornication. It encompasses uh, extramarital affairs. It encompasses bestiality. It co- encompasses prostitution. It comp- encompasses homosexuality. Everything else that is out there the Greek scholars would use this word to describe everything else aside from husband and wife in covenant marriage. And he says it should have no part in you. Or impurity. The word that's used here is the word that um, is uh, impure, unclean. Um, It's most of the time that word is used to describe uh, unclean spirits. When it talked about demonic spirits or things that were there. Things that were impure or off base. uh, Off putting that they were not what they were intended for. You don't use those for good things. Purposes. And this is a hard one for us to wrap our minds around because this is describing a person. And we can understand this when it comes to things uh, pretty easily, right? Um, I own two bucket heaters. You guys know what a bucket heater is? It's just a, it's a coil that goes down and has a little shield guard on it and a wire that comes out of the back, and you heat it up, and that little heater element gets hot but it has something around it to protect so that it doesn't, you can literally drop it in a bucket and it won't burn a hole in the side of the bucket. That's what it's, what it's for. Uh, and I have two of those. And they're both marked. The reason I have two of those is one of those is one of the tool pieces that I use if somebody calls me and says, hey, my sewer tank is frozen and I need to get it thawed so we can get it pumped out. I have one of those that is marked for sewer that gets dropped down the tube and cooks effluent, and makes it so that you can pump it out. The other one is in my office, and it's labeled for the baptistry. So if we set the baptistry up, and somebody wants to get baptized in warmer water, I'll use that one, drop that in there, and heat the thing up, and we're good to go. Now, I could argue, the thing gets like 500 degrees. It's cooking everything off of it, right? I could make that as an argument. But, if when you were about to get baptized and I said, oh, by the way, I forgot and I put the one that I used uh, to thaw out so-and-so's sewer into there, you might have second thoughts about your baptism, right? And we can understand the dynamic of it because I can can scrub the thing, I can do everything I want to do to it, but we still know what it has been used for and that it, it makes it impure. He says this ought not be there. Now most of those, those feel like very, you know, oh yeah, I don't know, we can point to those things. But then he says, or greed. 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 When it comes to people... Um, Pursuing power in the world, um, or uh, it, pursuing influence, people have a, a tendency to gravitate in one of three directions. They will either gravitate in a way that uh, is sexual in nature. They want power in in sexual things. Some people will pursue power because they just want influence, and others will pursue power because they want what money brings for them. And this pursuit of greed, he says of those things, uh, the pursuit of more. I need and want more. Not so that I can be generous, but because I want more. He puts these in the same list, and he says these are not proper amongst the saints. These aren't what we should strive for. And those, of course, are actions, things that we are doing. But beyond those things, it's not just what we're doing, it's also what we're saying. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse or lewd jesting. He says these are not these are not uh, part of what it means for us to be Christians, these describers. And then he makes a pretty profound statement. I say pretty profound. It is an incredibly profound statement. He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or a covetous man, linked very closely with a greedy man, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know this with certainty. That if this is the pattern of your life, if this is what is normal for you, if this is how you define yourself, that you live in this world of these things. You have no inheritance of the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And there's the key of this. What he is saying here is he says, these things have been revealed to you, and when you receive the gospel, you acknowledge the fact that you no longer wanted to walk in disobedience. You no longer wanted to walk according to the pattern that this world had. You wanted to be sons of obedience, sons of light. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light come consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another. In the fear of Christ. It's a pretty straightforward picture that he paints there. And as we take this text and we just lay it over our present day world, we are under no pretext that for us to say, I believe this, I walk in this, I adhere to this, and I expect other believers in Jesus to walk according to these things. We're going to see some opposition to that. It's not going to be received well by a world, because what this is telling us here is that what we say matters, and what we do matters. Because both of these things are saying, wait, you're meaning to tell me that God has the right to tell me not to do what I want to do. And the answer is, yes. He does. And this, I think, is why when it comes to the subject of marriage, we get a little bit bent out of shape. Because we live in a world in which teaches the subject of marriage that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. You pull your weight, you pull your weight, and everything's going to work out great. But see, here's the problem with that. Marriage doesn't work like that. Because every marriage that has ever happened on the face of this planet has been a marriage of two sinful people. And you may be able to make it work uh, that way for a little while, but then at some point in time it feels like, you know what, I feel like I'm doing 51% and they're doing 49%. And then it feels like, nah, I really feel like I'm doing 60% and they're doing 40%. And at some point in time it feels like you're my enemy. And there becomes this tension Because the world convinced us that marriage was ultimately for our happiness. And I think we got a lot of that from movies and things like that. Because anybody knows that if you live in close enough proximity to another human being, there's going to be moments where it's not happy just doesn't work that way. And so what are we as Christians to do when it comes to the subject of marriage? Well, I think one thing we have to do is kind of deconstruct what the world has taught us about the subject. And it's kind of hard because what we believe about this subject is so tied up into our cultural norm. Um... It's interesting, uh, the first wedding that I did in Alaska, um, I was a little bit concerned because I was out here and I didn't know, you know, I'd moved here and I didn't know, um, you know, how, how, how paperwork was going to work in Alaska and how I needed to do all that because when I was in Louisiana, for me to perform a marriage, I had to go to the local courthouse and they literally had a book that was probably published in like the 1700's or something. It was this gigantic huge thick book and I had to go and before the clerk I had to show them a document of my licensure as a minister of the gospel and show them that piece of paper and then they stamped a place and they signed a thing and I signed a thing and I had to register on the thing and that's where I was. In the state of Alaska if you have a pulse you can perform a marriage just so you know. It it literally does function like the priest in in uh, in the Princess Bride where you just stand for a man and wife, and there it is. There you go. It's your, now you do have to sign the form on there or whatever, but because it's all tied up with the government, right? And why? Well, it ultimately stems from the issues of Uh, if one person dies and there's mutual property that's owned and how that plays out in that. This is why in some states they had a thing called common law marriage where there didn't have to be any performance of a marriage ceremony. But if you lived with the person long enough, then it just naturally became that you were married to each other by reference of proxy. Why? Because if you lived with somebody long enough at some point in time you mutually own property and you have to figure out how do you divide those kind of things. Or issues of uh, we're now into 2023 which means that tax documents are coming out here very soon and so uh, the the reality is uh, if you're single you're going to get Docked more on your taxes than you are if you're a married individual in the way that all of those kind of things plays out, and why is all of that there? Well, it's because the government said so. The government defined what marriage is, and in uh, not so many years, the federal government acknowledged what or defined marriage. Uh, as the official unioning of not a man and a woman, but two individuals. Could be two men, could be two women and so-called same-sex marriage. And so now it is a federally recognized thing, and if states elect to do it, but all states are required to acknowledge if another state has uh, carried out a same-sex marriage, that that state is then required to acknowledge that as standing as a marriage. And so again, if you're old enough to remember uh, much in politics ten years ago, there was a a dynamic that was in that that says, look, for those of you that are against this, uh, what does it matter to you? How is it going to affect you if uh, two men get married or two women get married? How is it going to affect you directly? And... We've had federal court cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court showing exactly how that's played out of individuals that were in conscience against it by their spiritual uh, standings and so had to make statements about like, I'm not going to make a wedding cake for a wedding that I don't think is actually a, a wedding. Uh, There are currently, across the United States, multiple court cases uh, that are pushing for, again, the redefinition of marriage uh, to not change the gender of the marriage, but to change the number involved in the marriage. Um, That uh, what is now known as uh, polymorphous relationships Um, which are different than polygamous relationships. You're probably familiar with polygamous relationships like fundamentalist uh, King James or not King James, uh, fundamentalist Mormon sects and things like that where one man marries multiple women and has multiple wives or you look at the Old Testament and uh, those kind of scenarios. That's not polymorphous marriage. Polymorphous marriage is where three individuals are all married to each other. So the man is not married to the woman and the man married to the woman. It's the man's married to the woman, the woman's married to the woman, the woman's married to the man. It's a marriage of three. Uh, and that can be, uh, I read a, a court case a couple of years ago, I never actually heard, of, well, I'm assuming it did not go beyond that, but it was literally an entire compound uh, of a cult that was arguing that The whole compound should be able to be defined as a marriage union as that existed, that was in there. And this is why definitions matter. They matter tremendously for us. And so for us as Christians, as we look at it, one of the challenges is we've so tied Christianity in with our political understanding and our political expectations of how we live there, that we have to fight about these things, but here's the reality of this church. When it comes to us as Christians, the most important thing that we can do around the subject of marriage is not lobbying our congressman or electing a particular president. The most significant thing that we can do is if you are married. Husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church and give your life for her wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord be imitators of God Walk in love. Let no sexual immorality or impurity or greed even be named amongst you. Let there be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting that is not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. If you are not married, champion your married friends to love Jesus and model for them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Model for them what it means to be an imitator of Christ. Because the harsh statement of this is saying, for this you know with certainty that no one that is this, that is defined by this, immorality, impurity, or a covetous man who is an adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. And lest any of us say, well, good, that's not me. Jesus had words to say to us in in His Sermon on the Mount. This says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Good. Good to go. But I say to you, if anyone has lusted in his heart, he's committed adultery. The nature of impurity is that if God is perfectly holy and our sin is just slightly sinful, it taints the whole thing. And God can have nothing to do with our impurity. And covetous, we live in a nation that that is the dream. More, and more, and more. Were it not for Christ, these things would be true of us. Were it not for His life, were it not for Him, giving Himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, so would we go. And so as a world looks at us and it says, you're so narrow in your view of sexuality. You're so narrow in your view of marriage. You're so narrow in your view of love. We can respond with an air of arrogance that is not true of the Gospel in us. Because were it not for Jesus, so went we. And so our job is not to partner with, we don't walk with, we don't walk according to, as he says there. Don't let those, uh, let no one deceive you with the empty words that the world is throwing at you. Because we know that of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them of these things. But rather, uh, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible uh, is light. And then he says... That we ought to not walk, uh, uh, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When it comes to husbands and wives, men and women, marrieds and singles, the mystery of marriage is the tension of wrestling with this reality that somehow, It points us to Jesus. It points us to the gospel. And that there are things that are outside of the bounds of it that we can't accept. And we can't accept it for a number of reasons. One, because God said so. And two, because He called us to love people. And to love people means that we have to be honest about the reality in which they walk. This means for us that we have to walk uh, with people gently, with compassion, with care. It means that we need to look at our own lives first before we look at others. It means that we ought not to hate people because they sin differently than we do. But nevertheless, we acknowledge the reality of it as sin. I think of my own shortcomings, of all the times when I don't love Shell perfectly. When I don't love her as Christ loved me. When the old man slips in and I decide to be selfish... And I'm reminded of this great mystery that Christ loves me and gave Himself for me. And so it spurs me as a married man to look at my wife and to love her even as myself. The mystery of marriage is that We as the church are not perfect. We do screw up all the time. And yet Jesus loves us. He cares for us and He walks with us. He walks with us when we struggle. He walks with us when we don't live up as imitators of Christ. And so, as we think about this sanctity of marriage, I want us to think just a little differently. I want us to just as Christians assume the reality of one man, one woman till death do us part. Acknowledging the fact that sin slips in. Selfishness grows. People walk according to patterns that are not godly. That there are lots of examples of professing Christians that do not have marriages that exemplify or that exemplify the mirror the mirror image of Christ and His church. And not to point at those and say, see, marriage is flawed. But to point at those and say, thank God for Jesus. Thank God that in His sovereignty, He is a God that forgives and loves. That He is a God that when it comes to uh, our own brokenness, when it comes to our own sin, Christ knew all of it. Christ took the impure and he performed a miracle on it. He took what was broken and he made it whole. There's a famous sermon um, by a pastor named Matt Chandler. I'd encourage you to look up and listen to. I'll give you the gist of it. The title of the sermon was Jesus Wants the Rose. And he talked about uh a conference that he was at when he was very young uh, and there was uh when when I was young, teenage years and things like that, there was a, a major push in uh, Western Christianity um, for what was uh, just called the, the purity culture, it was surrounded by things like true love waits and those, which was good. It pushed for you know, emphasized the point of saying you know, save your virginity till marriage, save and, and do God's uh, do God's uh, will and planning and and those kind of things. But oftentimes the the means by which this good point was communicated was communicated in a way that did not have the gospel and he described this uh, uh, conference where he was at where he had this beautiful rose and he and, you know, handed it to somebody and he said look at it and count, you know, count the petals and feel it And then when you're finished with it hand it to the next person and on and on it went and as it passed around you know, as imagine a, a rose as it gets handled again and again and again, it begins to lose its luster. The petals begin to get weak at the stem, and they begin to get bruised, and things begin to droop. And as it gets passed around this big group of people, and once it gets to the back, he says, "Bring me the rose." And he and he emphasized the point, and and the illustration was of a promiscuous girl. And he says, "Here it is. Now, who who wants this?" As it's falling apart, what man would want this? And all these things. And he says, the more and more he was preaching this and realizing the implications that it was against the Gospel, Chandler stands up and he says, Jesus does. Jesus wants the rose. Because the brokenness of this world is for all of us. We may look at somebody else and their sin feels ick to us. And what a shame that their sin just doesn't illuminate the reality of us to where we see our own sin and we go, God, thank You that You loved me. That it doesn't cause us to look at the other and judge them somehow worse than us. But to look at the world in its sin... And allow it to shed light on the reality that we once were formerly in darkness ourselves and to cause us to love Jesus more. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not that we somehow figured it out and managed to walk in the truth of God's Word by our own power. It's that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Separated from God. And apart from His great graciousness towards us. Apart from God's goodness towards me. My marriage would look like every other awful marriage I've ever seen. Were it not for the grace of God. And so I boast... Not in my righteousness. We boast not in our intellect. We boast not in our marriage or our parenting. We boast not in our own Christianity. But we boast only in Christ who loved you and gave Himself up for you. So as we think about marriage... As the subject comes up, as you read news articles about marriage and all of those things, let me encourage you to focus on this reality. That yes, the Bible does have a very clear defining principle to it. And I would argue vehemently there is no wiggle room in that dynamic. But the point was not for us to beat the world up with it. The point was for us to show the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether we are in marriage or not. To model for the world this union of Christ with this church that He gives us a snapshot of in marriage. Because whether you're married or not, the gospel is for you. And the gospel points us to why marriage is sacred. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that it is. And God, I do pray that the truth of this Scripture would rest in our hearts. God, help these things that You said ought not to be named amongst us. Help us to ask the question, God, is there anything remotely like that in my life that I need to give up, confess to You, and and abandon? God, I do pray for the marriages of our church rural village life has a unique abuse upon marriage. And so I pray for the protection of those that are married here. God, I also pray for those that are single with us, whether they are in a place of singleness where they are okay with that, happy to walk in that, or whether they are in a place of singleness where that's really not where they would rather be and somebody hasn't come along yet. God, we just pray for Your graciousness to them. To know that they are not second-rate Christians because of that situation they find themselves in. You love them. And they are a part of your church. We're so grateful for it. God, would you help us in a world that is contentious towards this subject to walk in grace. To speak this message of love that is counter-cultural. It's against what the culture teaches, but it is actually what is true love to this world. And help us to be obedient to this passage that we ought to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We pray all of this in the sweet and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com And subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.